21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're International Relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. I am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How's it going, Sooms? Doing all right. How are you, Steve? Doing all right. Uh, we are coming at you Thursday, October 3rd. And what do we have on tap this week? What's going on? Earlier this week, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, celebrated their 70th anniversary. Oh, awesome. 70, what are they doing? Are they going to like a barcade or an escape room or something like that? Uh, well, you've successfully mentioned two of my previous birthday parties to which you attended. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Maybe getting some barbecue. Well, there was a massive military parade which caught uh, securities, uh, security studies folks international relations watchers all over the world. Uh, it caught their attention. All right. A lot of really impressive new hardware. Okay. All right. I like where this is going. Hardware is cool. I mean, I like video games and ping pong too, but you know, tanks, guns, missiles, subs. Well, let me get to one that I think you'll especially like the, uh, the Dongfang 41, the DF 41. Uh huh. An intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile which has a range of 9,300 miles, which Hmm. means it could reach the U.S. Ask me how long it would take. How long would it take? 30 minutes. That's not very long at all. That sounds like the kind of stuff that we have. Uh, Yeah. It's also also been shown in some press stories that satellite photos may have captured the new blue water Chinese aircraft carrier. Ooh. So how many, these guys have a couple carriers, right? So, yeah, I think this is a new one that they built. I'm pretty sure that they were recycling older ones. Right. They they bought old ones off of Russia or something and kind of retrofitted them. I think that that's right. But this is a fresh new uh, hip Chinese design, right? Um, so it's indigenous technology. So that's kind of a new thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess they were off also showing off hypersonic drones, cruise missiles. We've talked about that stuff a little bit. Uh, in the past weeks in the context of the Saudi oil strike and also the Russian uh, explosion way back in our pilot episode. And uh, you mentioned briefly the submarine launch, uh, the, the JL-2 submarine launch strategic missile believed uh, to be able to launch CJ-100 cruise missiles. Right. Yeah. So all of this to say, it seems like uh, China is showing, uh, the People's Republic of China on its 70th birthday, is showing off fully-fledged uh, nuclear capability. It seems like they are either working on or, or may actually have the nuclear triad in place at this point. Steve, what you're talking about with China's very impressive uh, military developments in the last several years is this is indicative of a very serious thing within international relations, which is the rise of China. So what we're going to do in this episode is take the 70th anniversary and the military parade and all this impressive military power, and we're going to try and put it in context and have sort of a broad conversation about the rise of China. 
What does it mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for China's neighbors? What does it mean for international relations in general? Yeah, the whole world, really. And and frankly, what does it mean for China? Because even even that's not clear. You know, wh- where the Chinese people are in all of this, and you know, the Chinese people are not just Han Chinese. Um, there are also people in Hong Kong. There are people in Xinjiang, uh, the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, there are Tibetans and many other ethnic groups besides. So. Yeah. And this is, I think the the thing you just said is an important, it's, it's two things you said are really important to stress. One is that China's rise is the impact and repercussions are wide ranging. And the other is because this is such an important event in the repercussions are so wide ranging. There's a lot of very smart, educated folks that have put out projections on what is, what will happen and they try their best to get good information on what is happening, but there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of opacity around what's actually happening within China and how it's being interpreted abroad and how other countries are going to react to China's strengthening. Yeah, it's very difficult to tell what sort of data is actually coming out of China, um, whether or not it's been cooked by the Chinese. In many cases, it has been. Um, so. Even evaluating the country's economic performance is like pretty difficult. Um, you know, they have the Great Firewall, which is literally a bunch of special uh, routers uh, that controls access to the Chinese internet, uh, both in and out. So they effectively have their own internet ecosystem. Right. I just want just to be clear, because remember, most of our audience is Americans, that it's state controlled. Uh, yes. on the on the routers. So whereas we could say, oh, Google is having service. Oh, I can't check my email for 90 seconds. Some nonsense like that. <laughs> this, this is the Chinese equivalent is, oh, during the big military parade that we started talking about at the very beginning of this episode, China doesn't want anybody on the internet. So the internet is down. Yeah, they can just they can just turn it off. Um, or you can wake up one day and all of your email is gone. And then somebody shows up to your door and starts asking you uncomfortable questions. Um, it's a very different system. <laughs> there are certain things that, yeah, uh, personal communication, emails are monitored. One cannot talk about events that the government might find embarrassing. That's right. Uh, and uh, especially since the rise of Xi Jinping, who's the current premier of China and General Secretary of the Communist Party. So I can't guy, keep up with all the titles. He has many titles. He adds new titles basically every year. The point is that he is in charge of everything in China. Um, literally everything basically comes down to him. And as far as we know, his rule is currently unquestioned and he is president for life. She comes to power in 2012 off after Hu Jintao. During these last seven years, he has become the most powerful Chinese leader in all in in modern Chinese history since Mao Zedong. And one of the ways he's done this is by rooting out corruption. You can't see this because you're listening. I'm doing air quotes around rooting out corruption. Some of the some of the folks he's rooted out were were corrupt. Some of them were competitors. That's right. He's he's done a lot of rooting. <laughs> he has consolidated power amongst party officials within the Chinese government yeah. in rise to power in yeah. order to consolidate power. For the past seven years, there's been this steady drumbeat, um, especially in the first couple of years, of guys who were like number two, number three, number five in the hierarchy, just 
ending up uh, in court um, being very sorry about what they did, whether or not they actually did anything. That's a China problem. I'm not Chinese. Why should I care? The Chinese are, as we've said, they've gotten a lot wealthier. They've gotten a lot more military power. Why should I care about this? What would this mean for me as someone who's not Chinese? Why would this bother me at all? Well, it depends what type of not Chinese you are. <laughs> what does that mean? Okay. If you are American, um, it might bother you um, because uh, it may be the case that um, your factory job is gone um, and has been exported to China. Uh, we've heard a lot of rhetoric <laughs> recently um, about how the Chinese don't play fair in terms of trade. Um, and in fact, uh, the Trump administration has launched a trade war against the Chinese um, and placed tariffs on the goods, accused them of stealing intellectual property, stealing American jobs, so on and so forth. Um, there is actually some merit to these claims. Um, and uh, this is not just a Trump admin administration thing. Uh, many of the Democratic presidential candidates are actually saying similar things now. Um, the Chinese have not been playing fair for quite a while. Um, the expectation that they ever would have played fair may have been unwise. Um, it's not clear to me why anybody ever thought that they were just going to be nice guys as they got richer and more powerful. That tends not to be the way countries uh, grow uh, into superpower status. When you talk about taking manufacturing jobs, as has become the parlance in American political discourse, mm -hmm. this is part of it. A lot of the rise of China has come through massive through manufacturing it's become a big manufacturing state but china has also its economy has grown it's changed and it's now a technology leader so some of the technological stuff that's happening with monitoring uh, monitoring co uh, conversations online as an example is also being used the is also being used to monitor people in the physical world yeah. So, so the point being is that the China is really starting to compete with the United States in every possible way, uh, militarily, economically, technologically, culturally, to a certain extent, um, and diplomatically. Um, the average American may or may not care about this, um, but there will be consequences if the Chinese take over international, relationship, uh, international leadership from the United States. Um, in particular, if the United States dollar were to lose uh, status as the global reserve currency, um, our economy would basically curl up on itself and die uh, because we would no longer be able to issue unlimited amounts of debt. Countries that do trade with each other get to trade in dollars. And this is the way to... Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. This is how you end up saving so that every time an exchange occurs, you don't have to convert money into other monies and then lose money that way. You trade in dollars. Yeah, that's also true. And so the dollar is one of the most important parts of how global, global finance and trade occurs. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Chinese, by the way, have called for uh, a secondary reserve currency, their own. Okay, so let's, let's bring these back to the, to the questions at hand. What is, how is China rising and what does it mean? Uh, Steve, let's talk about their big international initiative and what it could mean. In okay. 2013, they started talking about the One Belt, One Road initiative. Right. And this is another Xi Jinping special, right? So one of the things he's doing is consolidating power inside of China and stomping on sort of restive ethnic groups, uh, Chinese Muslims, 
called Uyghurs in the far west of the country, the Tibetans, of course, um, the Hong Kongers, which we've talked about, uh, and uh, he's made threatening noises at the Taiwanese as well. So that's inside of China. Outside of China, he's got the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Belt, One Belt, One Road Initiative, uh, it starts off as an idea to try and bring together the old Silk Road, which is the old trading roads between Europe and China. Right. This, in the 2013-2012 version of this, which has gone through updates, is now a massive maritime route connect and a land route connecting China with Europe. And it now has a third leg in addition to the sea route and the land route, which is now going through the polar, uh, which is going through the Arctic, called the Polar Silk Route. Long story short, under Xi's leadership and vision, I, I sound like a party apparatchik. Under, <laughs> Just like he wants you to. Uh, under leader Xi's uh, vision uh, is this idea of China reintegrating in, into its traditional place in the global order. Which as, is at the center. Right, right? as the center. There's so this a, is a, like you mentioned the Silk Road. This is a major throwback Thursday all the way back to 1,000 or 2,000 or even 3,000 years ago when China was literally the biggest, strongest, most innovative, most powerful state in the world. Um, I think most people know that the Chinese invented everything from gunpowder gun to paper currency to paper um, to giant fleets of treasured galleons. Uh, they explored uh, the Pacific Ocean before anybody else. They did all these things. They invented inoculation, um, just all the technologies that eventually enabled the rise of the West actually started in China. Right, um, Chinese civilization has given the world many, 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 many things that many of which we still use today. The point about the one, one belt, one road is that this is a way for China to reestablish itself and along with building things like ports and roads and airports that that in these countries that will accept being part of the one belt one road they'll also accept chinese workers that will help build these things and they'll also accept chinese technology that will make these things run steve can you foresee any kind of challenges that might come up with chinese workers coming in and chinese technology coming into non-chinese countries uh, that's a pretty awesome leading question. Yeah, I think uh, there, may be some, <laughs> there may be some, some cultural dislocation uh, because uh, the Chinese are building Belt and Road Initiative projects um, in, I think, dozens of different countries uh, on three or four different continents at this point. Um, it is the size and scale of project uh, when viewed from... 10,000 feet that only two countries on earth could even think about doing. And those two countries are the United States and China, right? The United States did stuff like this during the Cold War. They did it during the Marshall Plan following World War II, uh, where they literally, we rebuilt Europe um, in like all the senses that that term carries with it, uh, physically, uh, monetarily, financially, uh, technologically. We just gave huge amounts of aid. Um, right, but Steve, we helped rebuild Europe after World War II. Western Europe especially is quite nice. It's Yes, it has problems, but it's wealthy, and they're allied with the U.S. on almost every uh, major global issue. That's so interesting. What, is, what does that suggest about a massive Chinese infrastructure development plan? 
Well, it sounds like something straight out of the United States becoming a superpower playbook in that uh, you generate this web of obligations, right? Um, all of these countries together are not just not necessarily that powerful. They're mostly secondary developing countries. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a lot of real estate um, and it's fairly valuable real estate when you look at a map and you realize where it is, where these ports are, where these airports are. Um, you know, they are places where if the Chinese want to sail their new aircraft carriers uh, into a deep water port uh, in the Horn of Africa, they'll now be able to do that, um, which could make a lot of sense. Horn of Africa, where most of the world's oil passes through? Right. Um, exactly. They're, they're building ports basically, you know, circling um, the Middle East, right? Um, this could become you know, kind of an interesting uh, strategic gain uh, two or three decades from now in a theoretical world war against the United States, where you need lots of military bases. Right. Earlier this week, The Economist called the major infrastructure hubs in the One Belt, One Road plan, uh, they dubbed it economic choke points. Right. <laughs> right, which is to say that the Chinese are investing in strategic locations where major flows of goods and people must pass, which is mm -hmm. to say they're optimizing their influence through infrastructure development. Right. And the United States has plenty of military bases and, and friends as well. But uh, in terms of just raw outflows of cash, I don't think we're really competing uh, at the same scale that the Chinese are now doing. Of course, the Chinese are also coming from zero. They're coming from you know, 30 or 40 years ago, being a dirt poor agricultural nation um, that had just undergone a serious famine that killed 50 million people or something like that. Um, so they're really starting from a low point, but they're gaining a ground on us very, very rapidly. Um, and it seems like that curve is starting to go exponential. But here's where we get back, you know, earlier talked about the, the uh, opacity around China. And this is one of the problems for China predictors out there. There are very smart international relations folks who will make strong cases for why China has already passed the US economically and will pass the US militarily, it's imminent. Others will argue that the US has nothing to worry about with China. Gordon Chang at Stanford has made this argument that China is a paper tiger and should and can collapse whenever. And one of the reasons that you have these very disparate assessments from very smart people that are close China watchers is that it's not easy to get very good information on what's happening in China, either economically or politically. So for, so for example, for most of China's rise since the 70s, they're, they're growing, their GDP is growing at a rate like in the high single digits. But last year, it slowed down to 6%. For the U.S., this would be a monumentally huge year. Yeah, we, we tend to go between 2 and 3%. 3% is awesome for the U.S. But there are plenty, there, Brookings Institution, a, uh, a think tank in D.C., said that, nay, nay, it wasn't 6%. It was more like 4 or 4.5%. There are some projections that have it at 10 or 12%. Other projections that say, in fact, it's more like 1% or 2%, and China is about to fold. This is a problem. Another problem, going back to the idea of what people actually think, how strong is the uh, current administration, Xi Jinping appears to be very popular amongst the people, but it's unclear, given his rather rough 
way of rising to power, how popular he remains amongst the key members of the Chinese party. One problem is, as you have said, uh, like the lack of reliable data coming out of the country, a lack of information, which they control, I think, uh, pretty tightly to the vest. They, you know, we don't see their cards except when they choose to play them. That's number one. Number two is that both things can be true at the same time. Uh, they could be growing really fast and have an opportunity to supplant the United States as the most powerful country in the world, while also being really weak in certain ways. Um, they can be both a paper tiger and extremely frightening <laughs> at the same time. And if you look at what Xi Jinping has actually been doing, I think his actions are kind of consistent um, with somebody who believes that there are real weaknesses in the sort of Chinese domestic setup that need to be constantly attended to, repaired, papered over. Um, his way of doing that is to suppress them violently. Um, but, you know, at least for now, it's been effective. Externally, uh, the plan has been to get ready for a war with the United States. I think that's abundantly clear. That is a very reasonable take, but there are, again, there's folks that push back. So the two points you just touched on are Chinese domestic challenges, and the second one is how to handle the U.S. I'll talk first about Chinese domestic challenges. China has a real problem, and it has all summer and into the fall in Hong Kong. Hong mm -hmm. Kong is- We've we talked talk, about it. <laughs> yeah, in an earlier episode from 97, from 1997 to 2047, is supposed to gradually become part of China. Well, all through the middle part of 2019, the Hong Kongers have taken to the streets, and it has become as plainly clear as it possibly could that the Hong Kongers want to remain a Western, at least philosophically, a Western state with liberal freedoms, like free speech. They do not want to have to suffer underneath the Great Firewall of China. China has similar problems on a much larger people scale, and it's a far less reported story because of the Chinese opacity and in letting information out in the northwest of China, in the Xiangjing province, with the Muslim minority Uyghurs. There are, they, the Chinese have set up re-education camps, which is as terrifying as it sounds, for, what is it, Steve? It's more than a million Uyghurs? Yeah, one million people or more have basically disappeared into these camps, and it's not clear what's happening to them. Um, when and if they come out, they tend to act completely differently. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's pretty frightening. Uh, they're basically being told to really uh, disavow their religious preferences and ties um, and basically in insist that uh, they take uh, patriotism towards the Chinese fatherland first and everything else second, um, which is not the way that the Uyghurs have traditionally operated. It's, it's traditionally been much more autonomous than that. So this is really a new policy and it's pretty unpleasant. And the fear in Xiangjing is in addition to this, they, that Xiangjing will suffer the same fate as Tibet, which historically had a lot of cultural autonomy, but has been the, the culture in Tibet has changed as, as China annexed it. The Chinese would say we claim to rightful, rightful land and have moved ethnic Hans into Tibet to water down the Tibetan, religion, uh, Tibetan uh, culture. Yeah. This is what's probably going to happen in Xiangjing. The other international relations thing that you touched on is in the U.S., if we worry about the rise of China, and that's how we frame it. In China, they frame it as how do we peacefully manage 
or most peacefully manage the decline of the U.S. Yeah. How do we keep these guys off our backs while we take over from them? And so for all the power and impressive visions uh, that Xi Jinping has put out there, this is a real source of debate that close China washers like um, Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, have talked about publicly is in trying to manage the peaceful decline of the U.S., has she poked the American bear too hard too soon? That, that developing militarily, that going from a, quote, peaceful riser to a strategic competitor, has, has China, who was supposed to be uh, rising without too much supervision, now drawn our ire? And this is, we can see this in the case of the now aborted Trans-Pacific Partnership. The TPP, which was, which was a trade agreement that the U.S. spearheaded between other Pacific countries, Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. Uh, and I think the New Zealanders, yeah, they ratified it. Anyway, this was under the, in the second Obama administration. Hillary a, Clinton, yeah, she yeah, negotiated it. This was a very clear way to try and balance off China's power by improving American influence in the Pacific region. There is plenty of uh, reticence and distrust amongst China's closest neighbors about the rise of China. When the Chinese go about building islands, a thing that they do, to then put in military installations, this makes folks like the Philippines, the Filipinos, very anxious. Yeah, and rightfully so. Yeah, uh, the Vietnamese in particular. Yeah, the Vietnamese, the the Filipinos, uh, the Japanese, the Koreans, certainly the Taiwanese, of course the Hong Kongers, the Singaporeans, the Malaysians, the Indonesians. Everybody is watching what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are building artificial islands in the South China Sea, uh, basically near. Uh, deep sea oil reserves and stuff like that. Um, and they're building airfields on top of it uh, in such a way to form quote unquote unsinkable aircraft carriers. And the only reason to do that is basically to keep the, uh, the US Pacific fleet away, right? Um, I think what I said earlier, um, Xi Jinping is slowly, but very clearly preparing to fight a war against the United States. That doesn't mean that he actually wants to go to war against the U.S., but um, a realist would say the way that you avoid war is you actually prepare to fight one and win it, right? Such that if the United States decides that it doesn't like what China is doing in Hong Kong or Taiwan, someplace like that, um, we will not be able to send the Pacific fleet to help um, like we did in, in the 90s during the Clinton administration when China rattled, it, rattled its saber. Um, at the Taiwanese, and we actually sent a fleet through the Taiwan Strait, right under, basically taunting the Chinese and daring them to do something, and they stood down. Um, I don't think that that is a good idea anymore, basically. <laughs> the Chinese have come a very long way since I think that was 1994, right? Something like that, 25 years. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's a very different situation now. Yes, absolutely. Um, Steve, when you say realism for folks that didn't take uh, an IR theory class, yeah. re realism deals with power politics and international relations. It's concerned with uh, realpolitik. So That's right. It's this idea that countries are going to country. And what I mean by that is what countries do is they 
grow in power however they can, and then they fight each other. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's basically just what countries do. Uh, it's what countries have always done. It's what cu countries always will do. And if our foreign policy kind of falls in accord with that idea, we'll have many fewer problems. But it's not the only way of looking at things, right? There are other major schools of international relations theory, one being liberalism, international liberalism. And this idea is, uh, I think, very applicable to the Chinese situation because it's the way that we treated the Chinese in, during their rise in the 1990s and 2000s. It was, well, the Chinese are getting richer, so let's integrate them into the world economy and help them uh, grow economically. And as they do, they will naturally become more peaceful and more democratic. Um, they have grown. Uh, they have remained peaceful, but they have certainly not become more democratic. So at least that tenet of uh, liberalism has been discredited vis-a-vis -vis China. Right. So to Steve's point, you do not need to go back too far into uh, a database search of foreign policy articles written by very smart people calling, saying that China's eventual democratization, that the Chinese adopting democracy will come in as part of their, their integration into global markets. Yeah. Now, with free markets will come democracy and free people. Here's and the thing. They could still be right. It, it, it may well, just, absolutely. Yeah, they, it, they may, just, may not just be rich enough yet, but they could still be right. Um, part of the ways Xi Jinping acts makes me think that he's very worried about the future of the Chinese Communist Party. His actions are not consistent with somebody who is secure right? <laughs> in his, either his own power or in the power of the uh, governmental organization that he represents. He is acting in a way where he feel, he feel, he sees file, fires everywhere and he has to put them out before they become bigger. That's kind of what he's doing. Yeah, but okay. All right. I'm just quick aside and then we'll get back to China. But insecurity might just be a problem. Like for example, Donald Trump has tremendous support amongst their amongst republicans registered republicans and yet the republican national committee is killing primaries all over the country for the 2020 election that the president would surely win yeah i mean uh, it like whether he is personally insecure or the situation inside of china is insecure like either or both could be true um and the fact is that the Chinese are getting richer and the Chinese are getting more cosmopolitan. Places like Shanghai and Beijing and Guangzhou and like all these Chinese megacities, I mean, they're every bit as modern as, you know, London or New York or Los Angeles. They have all the same amenities. They have people with advanced graduate degrees from the United States in droves, you know? So these are people who are for now willing to accept no representation uh, in order to be rich and, and comfortable. But it's not clear that that's going to last forever, particularly if the Chinese growth miracle fails, right? That's when things really get real in China. Right. So again, to big picture it again, since 1979, so 40 years ago, when China starts to liberalize its economy, adopt uh, free market, at least in terms of its international market behavior, more than a billion people have been taken out of poverty in China. That's that, very good news. That is, but yes, while we're doing big picture stuff, for those of us that care about humanity, that is huge news. Yeah. That, that is perhaps an under-discussed part of this. The other part is that even though during this time when the, when the Chinese economy is growing at, in crazy impressive ways and bringing all these people uh, out, of out, of, out of poverty, 
even with the opacity around the Chinese economy, this is now the Chinese economy is now growing, growing at its slowest rate since it started to liberalize. Yeah, and the bigger you get, the harder it is to maintain a growth rate. Right? They're still growing pretty, pretty well in absolute terms, but they're now so big themselves. They're number two that it's not possible to continue to grow eight percent every year. Um, you know, they can cook the books however they want. It's just math, right? It's you know, once you get to a certain size, growth slows down. Um, the question is whether they can then take that wealth and distribute it to the many hundreds of Chinese in the countryside who still remain very poor and restive and don't have jobs um, and come to the cities looking for a better life and are actually kicked out of the cities um, because they're, they don't have free movement in China, <laughs> right? So is, uh, yeah. So uh, Napoleon almost 200 years ago, and uh, as noted in the opening credits of Crazy Rich Asians, uh, mm. this quote from Napoleon, let China sleep. When she wakes, she will shake the world. This is what we're talking about. It's clear that China has awake, has awoken, awoken. Yeah. China's awake, and yeah. it's. I don't know that they're. I don't know that they're woke, but they're definitely awake. Okay, China is awake, and here's the question: What is going to happen? We frankly don't know. We just no. know that China is getting wealthier. We don't, and we know that China is willing to flex its muscles militarily, at least in terms of developing muscles. It's developing all the capacities to project its power militarily and through ec economics all over the world. There, yeah. are Chinese, there are Chinese development projects, not just in the One Belt, One Road, in other parts of Africa, in Latin America. China is on the move and it's growing. But we don't know where, where this is going to go or how this is going to end for the U.S. Yeah, I mean, some of, some of what happens to China potentially is contingent upon the United States, right? We've watched them kind of run this playbook uh, at an accelerating pace over the past 10 years, but for 30 years now. And we actually helped them during the first 20 years, uh, very much. We helped them very much um, sort of get up off the ground, dust themselves off, and start to grow. Uh, over the last... 10 and especially seven years, uh, they have kind of taken the steering wheel away and accelerated. Uh, and they're now charting their own path. And uh, since uh, Trump was elected in 2016, uh, we've reacted and we've said, hey, like, we're not only not going to help you guys anymore, we're going to actually try to stop you because we don't, <laughs> we don't like where this is going. We've seen this movie, movie before and we don't like how it ends. We right. want to stay in charge. So we're going to try to slow down your economy. We're going to try to hurt you economically. Trump has, Trump has gone public in a much more bellicose way than Obama did. But in terms of, and the trade war is hurting the Chinese as well. So it's clear that Trump is, is going this way and he would never say this. But this is where the Obama administration was going. The yeah. Obama administration, with all of its diplomatic efforts, was trying to balance off China through the TPP. We pull out of the TPP. Frankly, Trump is in a in a reasonable position to take up the TPP, call it the Trump Pacific Partnership, <laughs> as as he might. And it with, almost spells Trump. I mean, it's perfect with <laughs> slight changes, and then going this way. But there are certain questions that I think just big picture questions that folks should kind of ask going forward, which is, what is going to happen? How is China going to handle? How is she going to handle? Things like the Hong Kong protesters, like the Taiwanese continuing to show reticence towards becoming part of China, which China says that they are. What is going to happen with Xinjiang and the Muslim and the, the Uyghurs? 
if if Trump loses in 2020, would a President Warren or a President Biden come in and go after China hard and go back to the drumbeat of human rights violations? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, uh, we just had our first um, live round injury uh, in Hong Kong, right, which is a pretty troubling development over there. In addition, there's reporting that the People's Armed Police, which is a Chinese paramilitary force under the direct control of Xi Jinping, has doubled its presence in Hong Kong from 6,000 to 12,000, which is not a good sign. During the 70th anniversary festivities, Xi Jinping was also quoted as saying, it is time to unify China, um, or something along those lines. It was translated that way, Um, which frankly should put the fear into uh, all of these sort of rest of provinces and places like Taiwan and perhaps also China's neighbors, right? (laughs) Um, So developments are starting to pick up speed. Um, You know that... Trump believes in what he's doing because the trade war is actually hurting him politically really badly um, in places that he is going to need to win for 2020. Um, So he believes that the trade war and what he is doing vis-a-vis China is important. And I think actually a lot of people are coming to agree with him, uh, including Elizabeth Warren. And I'm less sure about Biden, but um, Trump's position vis-a-vis China is not necessarily that unpopular in the United States. So things to watch for. Watch what's going to happen with Xi and his, his domestic challenges vis-a-vis Taiwan, vis-a-vis Hong Kong, vis-a-vis Xiangjing. Watch what happens there. Watch, how, watch what the U.S. does both under the rest of the Trump administration, if it's this year, if it's through next year, or for another four years, how the U.S. is going to react. It appears that the U.S., has very few supporters of trying to get China to democratize slowly as we did in the 90s and during the the Bush administration. Yeah, I think we've changed our tune. Yeah, These are the two big things to watch. How is China going to handle its domestic challenges and how is the U.S. going to treat China's moves? Yeah, well said. Awesome. Well, I think we'll leave it there. And as always, we will continue to monitor the situation. I feel like that's becoming a little bit of a catchphrase now, but we need catchphrases. We're like eight episodes in. So it's like, you know, It's time to develop a whole repertoire, right? Agreed. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Sooms. See you next week. Next week. Bye. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at all one word elucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show.